you know the town in a graveyard, graveyard. Is a low down, dirty place. You know they tell me to agree on Yeah, the low down dirty place. They take my baby to the graveyard. They pack dirt in a face. I'll follow that long black wagon, long black wagon down to the graveyard. Watch them pack dirt in my baby's face. I'll follow that long black wagon to the graveyard. Watch them pack dirt in my baby's face. Mr. Gray, y'all dig him. Why you wanna take my baby away? I wait by, by, by at my baby. When they were letting her down in a grave. Yes, I did. Letting her down. Letting her down in a grave. I'm gonna bring you some flowers, baby. Bring you some flowers on every decoration day, baby. Gonna decorate your grave, baby. On every decoration day. Everybody. My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to both Things Observed and Parapower Mapping. We are doing a show together today, and I'm here with Clonnie Gosh, and um, he is the host of Parapower Mapping. If you are listening on the Things Observed side, where he um, is, you know, assembling anti capitalist histories of intersecting secret societies, occult orders, moneyed families, drug smugglers, and sex and slave trading networks which is very similar to what we do on things observed so i'm very excited to be able to talk to him today we are going to have a very very interesting conversation i've been looking forward to 
this. So, Kalani Gosh, how are you doing today? Oh, I am doing great, Luke. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be on the show. I'm excited for this melding of the minds. And, and like you were saying, I think that we, we definitely have plenty that we could dig into. And there are a fair number of uh, similarities between our shows. Uh, in fact, I had started listening to your show before I ever even embarked on uh, my own recording and uh, parapolitical podcasting project. So um, you have been a source of inspiration for me. So um, this is also a trip uh, on a personal level because I haven't done a feature yet. So I'm excited to, uh, yeah, to cut my teeth, so to say. Yeah, I'm, I'm genuinely excited to have you on. I found you pretty shortly before I asked you to come on and I started listening my way through your series on, you know, um, occultism and the Nazis. And then I quickly made my way to uh, kind of the uh, spinoff of that, uh, the Altered State Fash Actors um, series that you've been doing. And there is so much information there. And so I guess before we start into the subject of today, the only thing that I have to ask is, what made you get into the study of parapolitics in the first place? And what made you want to embark on these recent series in particular? Because that's kind of going to be um, along the lines of what we're talking about today. We were just having a conversation before you hit record about the fact that we uh, share um a number of um, mutual inspirations and uh, touch points for our respective shows. I, I definitely have been inspired by like the work that uh, Jimmy Fallon Gong has done and the Subliminal Jihad guys, um, your show, and uh, I think you know reading like Peter Lavenda was an early entry point into becoming interested in the interplay between uh, Nazism and other fascist elements elsewhere um, in in the world and occultism specifically. And then the the altered state fash actors uh, miniseries and or ongoing series that I've been working on that's a part of this comparative paranoid analysis of Nazi occultism was inspired by a few different things. One, while doing some research into Helena Blavatsky, Henry Steele Alcott, and the, uh, the, the formation of the Theosophical Society, I uh, came across some, some quotes and some, some citations that were indicating that Henry Steele Alcott may have played a role in the Lincoln assassination cover-up. Um, and so that was something that, like really intrigued me uh, early on and was a jumping off point into this larger series. And then I, then I was also inspired by uh, a desire to, to try and trace the lineage of like MKUltra, Project Artichoke, Project Bluebird, these other, you know, earlier um, mind control project progenitors um, and and trace those operations, those projects, uh, origins back to these um, earlier military hypnotherapy um, practices that were actually widely implemented uh, during the Great War. And from there, it's just been a uh, enjoyable journey, and I've largely just been stumbling, stumbling through things as I learn them. And uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. 
Yeah, and it's a lot of fun to listen to. I genuinely uh, mean that. And I, too, was like blown away by the Henry Steele all caught stuff in relation to the Lincoln assassination and uh, whatnot. So that was total news to me. And so has a lot of the other stuff in the series. And I think that a lot of people in these circles, you know, have heard some things, read some things, or at least have their suspicions that, you know, the MK Ultra, Artichoke, all that has kind of um, its inception or at least gained inspiration from, you know, the Nazis, mm-hmm. um, you know, just kind of in the way that, you know, the Nazis took some of their eugenic inspiration from the stuff that was going on in uh, American history and whatnot. But you do a really good job of uh, really breaking that down. And I also think that you did a great job of breaking down uh, uh, Blavatsky because I've heard lots of people talk to her and she's kind of a confusing character to get into, especially as far as like what it is that she thinks and believes the secret doctrine uh, or is, isn't that one of her books? And then ISIS unveiled. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've read a little bit of both of those, not in total. And she's kind of like, um, someone who's impossible to read almost. <laughs> so um, I, I found exactly. your series very instructive. And I think that today that we have a really interesting character to talk about who I really knew almost nothing about. Um, I had um, read Unholy Alliance, but I guess he just kind of slipped my mind. Um, because the section dedicated to him isn't all that large and it had been a while and stuff. And correct me if I'm pronouncing his name wrong. Eric Jan Hannesen? Hanusen? How do you pronounce it? Uh, yeah. Oh, man, I don't know. Honestly, I'm, I always have to double check because my, my retention of these pronunciations is terrible. Um, but yeah, I, I generally have said Eric Jan Hanusen, um, but I very well could be wrong. So we'll go with that. I'll trust you. Um, listeners to this show are probably familiar with the fact that my pronunciation is bad. But I've also joked around before that uh, have, have you ever heard kind of some of the like low tier conspiracy people like make the like thing like think of spelling. It's a spell or something. So I like to joke around and say that oh. um, I intentionally don't pronounce and spell my enemies names correctly. So um, very good. um, Yeah, yeah, I like that. But yeah, anyways, um, we can uh, just go ahead and dive into him because you've really dug up a lot here. And uh, I want to give you enough time to really uh, elaborate on him. And so could you tell me a bit about the early life of Eric Jan Hanusen or should I say Herman Steinschneider? And what did his early childhood and his young adult years look like? So we might as well begin by pointing out the overlaps and um, synchronicities between uh, Hanusen and Hitler. I'm now I'm going to trust you now. I'm, I'm second guessing my own pronunciation. <laughs> uh, but uh, both men were Austrians. Um, both were born in 1889. And both ascended to the rank of Lance Corporal in their respective fighting units during the quote-unquote Great War. Both had an abiding interest in the occult as well. Notably, Hanussen uh, seemingly schooled Adolf Hitler in the 
art of mass hypnosis, if Lavenda is to be believed. Another similarity would be the fact that um, Hanussen perfected his hypnosis in a World War I-era nerve clinic while serving in the Austro-Hungarian army. Uh, while Hitler, meanwhile, was hypnotized by Dr. Forster at Pasevalk, um, which are things we might return to later on. Uh, as for Hanussen's childhood and adolescence, there are certainly some colorful and possibly uh, hagiographic anecdotes worth mentioning. Um, according to Mel Gordon's Eric Jan Hanussen, Hitler's Jewish clairvoyant, um, his birth name, which was uh, Hirschman Steinschneider, I guess you already said this, Luke, um, but uh, Harry, as we can uh, call him occasionally, uh, was conceived out of wedlock and born in a holding cell of a precinct jail in Vienna's Autokring district in June 2nd of uh, 1889. This was actually a mere month and a few days following Hitler's birth on April 20th in, I'm not going to be able to pronounce it, but uh, Braunau am Inn, near the German border. Gordon includes a photo of the birth record, which was number 386 in the text. Granted, I'm unable to actually read it. I think you've probably... Have, did you see the picture of the birth certificate, Luke? I don't know. You might have been able to make out some of it, but my copy that I was working off of on Internet Archive was like so pixelated that you can't even see the text. No, I did not see his birth certificate. Or if I did, I guess I just, uh, while reading, you know, stumbled over that quickly. But anyways... Oh, yeah, no worries. No worries. Um, Little Steinschneider was the son of an Austro-Jewish vaudevillian named Siegfried Steinschneider, who managed to woo Hirschman's well-to-do mother, Julie Cohen, during a Rosh Hashanah service. Uh, she was actually the daughter of a bourgeois Orthodox father whose business was importing fur pelts from Russia. According to Gordon... Hirschman came into the world in a dank holding cell because his maternal grandfather so disproved of his daughter's elopement with this quote-unquote grease paint actor that he had them arrested on quote phony charges of property theft when they returned to Vienna from Moravia. So Hirschman was yanked from his reverie and into the cold, hard streets of Vienna by the calloused hands of a matronly midwife in a literal holding cell while his parents were forcibly separated, or at the very least, according to Eric Jan Hanussen. After uh, his delivery, Julie was spirited back to the Cohen compound in a carriage. A couple days later, Siegfried came and stole his bride-to-be and their young son away a second time, stealing into her bedroom at night. Actually, I was just reading about this. I, I don't have this in the notes, but um, evidently, in Hanussen's version of events, he claims that not only did he uh, 
bring his uh, parents together from in utero, <laughs> uh, convincing them with his uh, telepathic abilities to, to get married um, when he was still just a fetus. But he actually uh, used um, his screaming. He, he, he was screaming incessantly uh, as just a, a, a wee mere infant to distract uh, the, the like servants and the Cohen compound so that, uh, his father, the, the vaudevillian, uh, Siegfried could, um, uh, escape with him and his mother. So, so he created this distraction, uh, like a great example of the, the Hanusen, um, myth-making, you know, um, anyways, not very believable. So yeah, we should take that story with a grain of salt. Uh, it's also important to note that Arthur J. Magida, or uh, Magida, author of the Nazi Seance, depicts this anecdote from Hanusen's childhood a little differently. He actually claims that Hanusen's mother was released and returned to the Cohen residence via carriage while in the throes of labor. Um, other things to know, Hirschman's parents nicknamed him the Germanic Heinrich, uh, but mostly referred to him as Hermann, apparently, and that's how he was best known until he took on the fanciful persona of Erik Jan Hanusen, a uh, Danish aristocrat decades later. Hermann's parents uh, would then hit the vaudeville circuit in the Habsburg Empire, which brought them to a town then called Hermannstadt. Um, Hanusen's earliest recorded memory from this period is most likely a bit of auto-hagiographizing again and myth-making. He claims that at the age of three, he suddenly had this clairvoyant impulse. In the middle of the night, he ran out of their home and to the landlord's house, who happened to be a druggist, According to his own account, he silently took the druggist's little daughter's hand and conveyed her to the cemetery that adjoined their houses. Cemeteries are also a constant throughout uh, the, the Hanusen tales. That he I made. noticed that, and I, I picked up on that as well. So I, I don't know right. what that's all about, but... I, yeah, I guess just some of that, like... Uh, occult personification probably and yeah i don't know and and some coincidence too or maybe something more who, who knows um evidently they they hid behind a tombstone and then a couple minutes later according to the the legend the house of the landlord suddenly exploded so my question for you luke would be do you believe it I honestly don't know. I mean, I'm open to things that are that strange, I suppose, but I uh, tend to uh, take everything uh, that Hanusen says with a uh, large grain of salt because he definitely likes to, like many occultists, I mean, Crowley, uh, Blavatsky, you, you name them, are they all kind of have a tendency to inflate their stories a bit. So, Right, right. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think it seems like there are some um, instances and anecdotes from throughout uh, Hanusen's life that are 
there are a couple of them that are like difficult to to comprehend and um, and to disprove outright. Um, this one, this especially the stuff from earlier in his life, I tend to be uh, more skeptical about just because it seems like the the main sources for uh, his childhood, adolescence, and um, the years prior to him actually becoming like a fixture in the like theatrical magical scene uh, throughout Euro- Europe at the time. All of these stories seem to come from his own memoir, so it's, it's hard to know. Mel Gordon, the um, author of this other Eric Jan Hanusen um, biography that we'll be referencing quite a bit, contends that, at least on the merits of chronology and geography, Hanusen's claims are verifiable. I also have to mention this for the pension fans out there, because Gordon refers to the 1900 edition of uh, Boddicker's Guide to Austro-Hungary um, when verifying that Hanusen's story about the cemetery and uh, rescuing the little landlord from the impending explosion is at least uh, concomitant with his established history. I just had to mention that Baedeker comes up because Pynchon used a Baedeker guide when writing his early short story Under the Rose, which is a spy caper that later made its way into V. I'd say I'm ambivalent to whether uh, Herman actually foresaw the future. I think that Hanusen must have been some kind of preternatural talent, especially in regards to observation, performance, understanding human behavior, and the like. While I struggle to believe that Hanusen actually had uh, bona fide psychic abilities, um, especially because of the degree to which he was a confidence man and pathological liar, I won't say it's impossible that he ever managed to tap into a heightened sense of awareness. Um, I'll quickly mention one other anecdote from his childhood that's pretty curious, and again, take this with a grain of salt, as the only source for this is uh, Hanusen. The reality is that up until the point at which his star was ascendant and he began to appear in local papers um, in the early 1900s, many of Hanusen's stories are difficult to verify. But uh, we've got this tale from his time living with his father in Boscovitz, or Bo- yeah, Boscovitz, where he evidently became obsessed with Emperor Nero at uh, nine years old and enlisted a gang of fellow street urchins to help him recreate the burning of imperial Rome. Evidently, they first intended to set the marketplace in the center of town ablaze, but the previous night's rain scuppered their plans. They fled to the outskirts of the town, at which point Herman dipped rags in petroleum, lit them on fire, and threw the lot into a miller's barn. Crazily, this very barn was supposedly the hideout of one of Austro-Hungary's most wanted outlaws, Heinrich Grossel. So, 
Hanusin's bit of arsonry purportedly led to the bandit's capture, who was evidently <laughs> who was evidently rolling in the hay with the daughter of the owner of the local textile factory in said barn at the time of Herman's prank. So already at the unripe age of nine, Steinschneider was already engaged in quote-unquote crime fighting with a touch of telepathy, potentially, and uh, evoking his later exploits, which um, often involved a degree of opportunism. Herman evidently received quote-unquote municipal honors, which undoubtedly gave him a taste for fame. Unfortunately for both him and his father, he was only able to claim five of the 100 gold ducat reward offered for uh, Grossel's capture, and there seems to have been some consequences for his Nero-esque arsonry scheme. He received 25 lashes from a schoolteacher, and his dad was fired from his job at the textile factory. One can't help but wonder if little Hanusen might have had prior knowledge of the fact that Grossel and the young debutante would be copulating in the barn. Perhaps he overheard some uh, factory floor gossip from his uh, papa. That's the best that I can uh, come up with. <laughs> I think that's something that's very interesting about Hanusen is that um, from his early life, you can see so many trends that, you know, um, carry through the rest of his life, whether it be kind of, uh, you know, most likely inflating some of his own stories, um, being a little Jewish boy who's obsessed with the Emperor Nero. Um, you could kind of make a some sort of correlation between that and his later association with Nazis and, you know, um, yeah, just so many interesting things to say about him and something that I thought was very interesting. And this is another thing that we'll have to take with um, a grain of salt, but I was reading this article that um, I sent to you and we've both read it. It's by um, Richard Spence, the author of secret agents, six, 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 which is a pretty informative book about Aleister Crowley and his, uh, connections to intelligence, among other things. But um, he would say in this article that he wrote for New Dawn magazine that um, the Steinschneiders were rumored to be of Sabbatian family lineage, according to this one rabbi. And I looked up the rabbi who said it, and this is why we you know, should probably take this with a grain of salt. Um, I don't know if you looked into the rabbi who made this claim, but he was a character all in and of himself. I can't remember his name. The name escapes me, but he wrote this book about how um, Freemasons and the Illuminati and all these different people were all part of a communist conspiracy to undermine Judaism and the state of Israel, which is kind of like an interesting inversion of uh you know, the anti-Semitic, you know, that Jews are, Definitely. you know, conspiring, you know, through Freemasonry and the Illuminati and whatnot to wreak havoc on civilization. And he was 
parts of all kinds of other stunts. Like he was um, this super hardcore religious Zionist who I guess at one point with some other rabbis tried to like restart the Sanhedrin like 50 years ago or something like that. So I don't know. Have to take that claim with a bit of salt, but apparently there is some rumors that the Steinschneiders were of Sabbatian family lineage. And for those who don't know what Sabbatianism is, um, there was this 17th century um, purported Messiah by some named Sabbatai Sevi who had some kind of antinomian teachings um, and some kind of Gnostic-like ideas that um, are purported by some people, you know, for there to be redemption through sin and transgressing the, you know, God's law and what have you. So I don't know if that is true or not, but it's certainly an interesting idea and would have some um, explanatory power later on for uh, Hanusen's connections to Nazis and some of the worst people imaginable, sexual blackmail, um, seeming to have some, you know, interesting sexual proclivities himself for the day and age and whatnot. So um, some interesting stuff to ponder. But anyways, I want to get your um, opinion as to what Spence says in that article. Do you want me to actually read the quotes that you included here? Yeah, we can if if you think that it would be um, instructive. I I feel like we might as well. Um, quoting from the Spence essay that uh, Luke's referring to, so quote, but all was not as it seemed in Prosnitz. The town's Jewish community was a hotbed of the Sebastian heresy, a secretive sect which revered the 17th century Messiah Sabbatai Zevi. Um, Sebastians not only regarded Zevi as the Messiah, but also followed his antinomian teachings that advocated the deliberate transgression of Jewish law and a Gnostic-like idea of redemption through sin, as Luke said. Moreover, Prosnitz was infiltrated by the even more radical and occultic Frankist sect, whose practices included orgiastic rituals. In the opinion of Gershom Scholem, uh, Sebastian influence completely subverted Orthodox rabbinic culture in Prosnitz. One infamous proselytizer of Sebastian beliefs was Judah Leib, or uh, Lobel. He claimed to be able to invoke the Shekinah, uh, the divine presence, a stunt he pulled off with a backlit set that made magical letters appear on his chest. The trick sounds very much like something Hanusin might have tried two centuries later. But given that he never lived in Prosnitz, how much could he have been influenced by its sectarian culture? Rabbi Marvin Antelman uh, alleges that the Steinschneiders were a Sebastian family and singles out Hanusin's great-uncle Moritz Steinschneider as a prime example. Hanusin doubtless learned something about Prosnitz from his father. He did visit and amazed locals by performing an exorcism on a milkmaid. Consciously or not, Hanusin's later behavior from his denial of his Jewish roots to his rejection of sexual and other mores uh, 
obsession with mysticism and even his association with virulent anti-Semites all more or less conform to the Sebastian Frankist mold, end quote. Yeah, I found that to be um, particularly interesting, um, that claim. And I do think that while, you know, we do have to take it with a grain of salt, that it would have some explanatory power over um, some of the, you know, later actions of Hanusen. But anyways, as you were saying. Yeah, so I, I also found the essay really interesting. Uh, you actually got to it before I did, I believe. And um, although I'm not sure that I've seen a uh, Sebastian connection made elsewhere, at least not in uh, Gordon's book or uh, Magi does the Nazi seance, um, I definitely believe it's possible that his father Siegfried and or the aforementioned great uncle Moritz might have passed down this quasi-Gnostic and antinomian heritage to Hanusin. Uh, and as Spence indicates, it's fascinating to think about how uh, Sabatai Zevi's uh, transgressive ideas and potentially even the Frankist sect might have informed Hanusin's worldview. Um, whether his upbringing was percolated with these sorts of esoteric and antinomian ideas, uh, I'd say it seems hard to say definitively. But if it was, it might shed additional light on his willingness to fraternize with the Jew-hating men of the SA and SS paramilitaries and his aspiration of becoming the Nazi quote-unquote minister of the occult, to use a phrase from the uh, Herzog film Invincible. One thing that I did just notice in the Gordon book is the fact that Hanusin's birth certificate was filed in Prosnitz. So that also indicates that the ties between his father and the community he came from were still strong, at least at the time of Hanusin's birth. There's also a section in the first chapter of Gordon's book where he describes how the earliest known Steinschneiders came to Prosnitz via Pressburg. Evidently, it was these forebears of Hanusin's, specifically Daniel Prosnitz the Younger and his son Aaron Daniel Prosnitz, um, which, quick aside, but that's a interesting naming convention. You might know, Luke, I definitely don't, but was it like, was it commonplace to use the town you lived in as your surname then? Or um, was Prosnitz named after Hanusin's ancestors? I, I'm not sure. I'm unfamiliar um, if that was a conventional naming practice or whether or not Prosnitz, Prosnitz was named after Hanusin's ancestors. But um, it's certainly... Um, an interesting choice. So I, I don't exactly know um, what um, the utility would be in that if it was something aside from one of those two options. But yeah, I'm, I'm just as much uh, in the dark on that one as you are. Right on. Uh, anyways, evidently Daniel and Aaron Daniel were Wunder Rebbe's essentially rabbis celebrated for their magical and curative practices. Uh, I think I'm quoting Spence there. 
And according to Gordon, actually, excuse me, I'm quoting Gordon. Uh, Aaron Daniel adopted the surname Steinschneider, uh, which supposedly translates as stone cutter or gem cutter in reference to the Kabbalistic amulets that he printed with stone blocks and then sold. That said, be aware that uh, Magida disputes attempts to connect Hanusin to Jewish mysticism. Although in his notes, he's specifically referencing Hasidism. Um, he claims that efforts to link Hanusin to Baal Shem Tov, founder of Hasidic Judaism, are revisionist, and he seems to indicate that people are getting lost in translation, that Baal Shem Tov doesn't mean amulet carver in Hebrew, but master of the good name. As someone that doesn't speak Hebrew and is admittedly hugely ignorant of the history of these Jewish sects, I'm unsure whether Magida's claim contradicts Spence's speculation about the possibility that the Steinschneiders were Sebastians or Frankists, but I figured I should at least mention it. All very interesting, and I actually just found um, an entry in the Jewish Encyclopedia about Prosnitz, because um, I tried to Google real quick and see if I could find an answer, and I still don't have an answer for, um, you know, the naming of uh, Hanusin or um, the, the town itself, but apparently Prosnitz um, was in Moravia one of the biggest, the second biggest um, Jewish enclave in the area, numbering 328 families, and it says right here in the Jewish Encyclopedia that it was, you know, the center of this Sebastian heresy. And so it would, uh, you know, make sense for the claim of this um, rabbi to be true. And we can go somewhere other than this, you know, kind of obscure crackpot character, you know, to the uh, Jewish encyclopedia um, to, you know, um, see that this claim that the Sebastian heresy kind of ran rampant in this uh, Moravian mm. Jewish enclave um, was definitely um, a, a thing, you know, noted by other, you know, Jewish historians and whatnot. So sure. interesting to uh, ponder. But so we've seen how in Hanusin's early life that there is a penchant for theatrics. It almost kind of reminds me of like, I don't know, maybe like a, his early life is like a weird Alejandro Jordowski film or some, something like that. <laughs> Um, especially with the maybe I'm just thinking that because of the carny stuff. And have you seen Santa Sangri? Um, maybe that's where I'm I'm getting that from. But anyways, so how much do you think his upbringing factored into his later theatrics and his stage act? And do you believe that Hanusin was a true believer in the occult? Yeah, great question. Uh, so I definitely think Hanusin's upbringing was hugely impactful on the development of his stage magic and mentalism routines. I mean, for one, we've got the fact his father was a vaudevillian for a time. So 
Hanusen undoubtedly inherited his parents' love of quote-unquote pounding the boards or pacing the stage, so to speak. Speaking of which, I forgot to mention it earlier, but Hanusen's mother died of tuberculosis when he was really young, so his was a tragic upbringing in a lot of ways. At the age of 14, Hanusen supposedly fell in love for the first time. At this point, Eric and Father Siegfried had moved back to Vienna and were now living in Ottokring. Their tenement evidently looked down on the massive beer garden of the Red Bretzen, a tavern, and Hanusen would spend his nights watching the cabaret performances on the stage. According to legend, Hanusen fell in love with a 45-year-old soubrette, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, not sure, who sang on the stage regularly. Evidently, this preteen's ardor was pretty intense. Hanusen was always a ladies' man, or at the very least cultivated a carefully concocted persona of being one. But in this instance, his dad wouldn't allow him to go and see the middle-aged singer perform, so he ended up throwing a massive rope of family heirlooms and trinkets, like uh, a la Rapunzel, <laughs> uh, out of his, his bedroom window to try and woo the middle-aged cabaret performer. IDK whether to believe it or not, but Gordon claims that he succeeded, and that Hanusen actually convinced the woman to elope with him, which is really very wrong. Before they would begin their new life as performers together, Herman first planned to grace the stage of the Bretson. He pawned his bar mitzvah watch and purchased a... Uh, a beard and wig for uh, comedic effect. He evidently managed to uh, convince the booker at the tavern to let him perform, but he bombed ignominiously and was literally yanked off the stage with a hooked cane, according to the legend. His paramour vanished. Herman had a taste for theatrical life now, though, and a minor setback wasn't about to stop him in his tracks. He supposedly next noticed a casting call for the uh, quote-unquote Think Star Players, a Moravian theater company, and set about figuring out how to audition. Here we see an early instance of Hanusen's proclivity for counterfeiting and fraud. To get together the money he needed for his train fare, Hanusen supposedly pawned his school vest and then used the money to print a manuscript of cabaret songs and comedic sketches that he penned in a single night, which he then sold to Joseph Blaha, a publisher of Viennese sketch music, claiming that he'd discovered the manuscript 
in a collection of the estate of a recently deceased cabaret singer. So yeah, uh, snake oily from the very first. Hanusen's gambit paid off, literally, as he made it to the audition and got the job. This led to Hanusen being tutored in the ways of actors by a professional leading man named Adolf Arthur, who just happened to also be an alcoholic who was slowly ravaging his brain and who struggled to recite his lines. After two seasons with the theater company, Hanusen was abruptly let go. This would lead to him securing a job as a carny with a village circus, another seminal period in Hanusen's life. But uh, to get back to your question, Luke, you also asked about whether I think that Hanusen was a true believer in the occult. From what I can tell, there's a decent amount of evidence that Hanusen was a genuine mystic, at least at times. He probably became more of one during his peripatetic travels in the Mediterranean in the early 1920s. We might touch on it later, but Hanusen encountered actual uh, thaumaturgists and wise men on that trip whose abilities transcended mere sleight of hand and uh, muscle reading, which is something we'll explain later. Hanusen had a bit of an existential crisis on the journey and also seems to have had a quasi-numinous experience while performing a seance in a ruined temple uh, on Kos in uh, Greece. There's evidence of an abiding mysticism in the Steinschneider family, a bit of which we already detailed. You've got the possible Sebastian connection in Prosnitz, you've got his Kabbalistic ancestor Aaron Daniel, and then we haven't mentioned this much yet, but Richard Spence argues that Hanusen's great-uncle Moritz Steinschneider may have been a link to Hanusen's possible um, esoteric heritage, and that he may have bequeathed that cultural uh, those cultural traditions onto Hanusen. Interestingly, Moritz was evidently a renowned professor and quote-unquote orientalist in Germany, and he was especially known among the Jewish intelligentsia for his archival work with medieval Jewish ritual texts. That said, Gordon states that Moritz always maintained he was a non-believer, but at the very least, this indicates an interest in the occult being practically encoded into Steinschneider genes. Very interesting. Yeah, um, so we're starting to get a good picture of who Hanusen is and I feel like I pronounce his name a little bit differently every time. So eventually I'm going to get onto the right pronunciation of it um, by accident. But so I think something else that is kind of a seminal part of Hanusen's life and that would be another theme in addition to the um, talking himself up and these incredible stories, the interest in the occult 
being this guy who is got, you know, charisma stage, um, guy on stage, um, is the fact that he would be a blackmailer of sorts. So could you tell us a bit about Hanusen's first foray into the publishing world where he would first get into blackmailing and his subsequent exploitation of a printer strike? Yeah, for sure. Uh, this is a wild story. So prior to World War I, Hanusen began working for the infamous Viennese scandal sheet and blackmail tabloid known as Der Blitz. Also, uh, Luke, I was just thinking, like, as you were talking about um, our, like, ever-changing, ever-changing seasons of pronunciations, I just, like, I really wanted to riff with the with a uh, we're, we're playing like uh pronunciation russian roulette or something <laughs> <laughs> i should be better <laughs> i should have been better i should have checked uh, the pronunciation before i you know i i was the one that that was like we got to cover this guy in the first place so i apologize for for being uh, uncertain myself but anyways prior to world war one uh, Hanusen began working for the infamous Viennese scandal sheet and blackmail tabloid known as Der Blitz. Um, and he had been eking out an existence through publishing uh, chansons and witty monologues for the li uh, literary cabaret. He was a part of a gang of lounge lizards and cafe fixtures at the time. And via a buddy's father, he got set up with a paper that was a literal con called Hymns, Vienna's, <laughs> this, this name cracks me up, Hymns, Vienna's wedding newspaper. The gist was basically this, each issue printed the exact same three essays, the only difference was the date and the uh, reportage on the quote-unquote society page, where a future bride and groom would be celebrated. So wealthy patrons would basically pay to have this sham paper concocted, which they would then distribute at wedding feasts to bolster the social standing of the new couple. So a few years later, Hanusen would use this fraudulent journalism experience to secure a position with Der Blitz, which operated on a similarly criminal model. Basically, the tabloids journalists would creep through the streets of Vienna, photographing and reporting on the peccadilloes of high society. They would then extort those caught red-handed for major payoffs to suppress the story. It's a model that seems to continue to be practiced today. Hanusen's Der Blitz experience also undoubtedly inspired his sexual blackmail practices in late Weimar and early Nazi Berlin. The story about Hanusen's exploitation of a printer strike goes like this. In 1914, Leitner, aka the publisher of Der Blitz, ceased publication because of a printer strike, as we mentioned. 
Hanusin had recently been accepted back into the fold of the publication and had run an expose of Vienna's gay bars. Now, there seem to be two possible interpretations of what happened next. Either Hanusin was in cahoots with Leitner, and the publisher knew that Hanusin was going to print a counterfeit copy of the quote-unquote revolver sheet, and or had even requested that he do so while he publicly battled the unions, or else Hanusin stabbed his employer in the back. Regardless, Hanusin mocked up and printed his own illicit copy of Der Blitz. And in it, he ran a letter by a psychologist named Joe Libero. In the letter, Libero quote-unquote exposed the deceit of the purported telepath Rubini, (laughs) which everybody was like, aping off of Houdini's name at that time, it seems. Um, Though, uh, it would be just my luck if it actually turns out that Rubini was literally named Rubini. I I should probably check that. Um, But at the time, uh, Rubini was taking Vienna by storm. I think we'll return to this in a minute, but it's illustrative of the way in which Hanusin was constantly scheming. He exploited the printer strike to not only make his entree into publishing, but also to damage the reputation of a rival. Leitner, of course, publicly denounced Harry's publication, but who knows, perhaps Harry was feeding him profits on the sly. Regardless, The account is instructive, as from what I can tell, it appears to have been the first time Hanusin published his own broadsheet, even if he was acting as a front for Leitner. The experience still would have served him later on when he began purchasing and publishing tabloids and journals in Berlin. It's also illustrative of the way in which Hanusin's successes were so frequently predicated by sly opportunism and or even backstabbing. And we will certainly see some more of that sly opportunism and backstabbing as we delve deeper into his story, as well as blackmail and some of the later blackmail will make that look tame in comparison. Honestly, most of the later details of Hanusin's life will make the rest of the story seem tame in comparison, even though, you know, he's already off to uh, quite the colorful start, you could say. But uh, another portion of Hanusin's life that would, I think, you know, greatly factor in the things was, so he was conscripted into the Austro-Hungarian army, is that correct? Yeah, definitely. This is actually a good point to mention another interesting anecdote that I noticed a little while ago. So Harry Steinschneider returned to Vienna in 1908, 
And this was following his tours with various provincial big-top circuses. At this point, he reunited with his dad and then was drafted into Franz Josef's imperial army, then at uh, 20 years of age. Now, I would tend to think that this story is the genuine article, especially when you consider Herman's tendency to obscure his Austro-Jewish past from the 1920s on. But evidently, he was deployed to Sarajevo, where he served for a year before he contracted a, quote, severe bout of hydrocell, end quote, meaning that his sperm ducts were flooded, which one can only imagine the sorts of activities that might have brought this about. Or alternatively, perhaps <laughs> perhaps the story is apocryphal and an attempt by Hanusin to maintain his virulent image. Um, but yeah, the, the dude was uh, dealing with uh, a serious issue in the testicular region. Anyways, he, <laughs> he was discharged as he couldn't discharge. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually true. <laughs> I don't know if uh, this condition actually causes that or not, uh, or prevents you from discharging or not, but I, I just couldn't help myself. He returned to the citizenry in Vienna, and an uncle of his named Dr. Max Arminsky evidently used quote-unquote bureaucratic connections to help the ex-soldier secure a job with a government newspaper. Now, the fact that he had this well-connected uncle, and the previously mentioned Uncle Moritz, who was also a renowned academic, could be evidence supporting the possibility that Hanusin would become involved in espionage later on. And we will certainly delve more into that possibility, which I say is a, a significant possibility, especially when we get into him, you know, meeting up with that tobacco magnate and, and all that, um, you know. But so during his time in the military, he would work at his craft, you could say, um, so could you tell me a bit about his escapades and mentalism during this time? And we have cemeteries once again popping up, the cemetery seance. <laughs> yeah. So Hanusin was in and out of the front lines throughout his tour during World War I. And he was actually wounded repeatedly, seemingly had pretty bad luck. Another synchronicity between him and Hitler would be the fact that Hanusin faked a quote-unquote bout of shell shock in 1915 in a desperate bid to escape combat. That's not to say that I think Hitler faked his war neurotic symptoms that led him to Posavok, where he was hypnotized by Dr. Edmund Forster. But whether Hitler's quote-unquote hysterical blindness was genuine or not, there are still vague similarities. 
and they probably had some similar experiences in their respective military psych units. Both men might have been subjected to electroshock. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for the doctors of the time to use galvanic shock to weasel out the deserters from the genuinely afflicted. Anyways, following his failed attempt of faking PTSD symptoms at uh, Olmutz, he was redeployed to the city of Gorlis, where he led a burial squad of non-combatants and Russian POWs, and they spent their days planting headless torsos in the marshland around the city, which had to have been miserable work. During this time, he befriended a Russian POW who was a talented poet and painter, and the two organized a seance in the cemetery to benefit the prisoner's welfare, or at least on the face of it. Wouldn't be surprised if they pocketed some or most of the funds themselves as the grift was constant in Eric's life. Um, as for the seance, though, uh, something that's important to know is, um, I believe, I guess he was a Russian POW. I'd, ha I'd have to double check this, but uh, the guy that Hanusin collaborated with on this event, I believe, was named Captain Mitchka, and uh, Hanusin came up with the idea of um, he found someone that was working in the military post where they were stationed um, and he bribed this guy who was working he was a military censor essentially working in a black box surveilling all of the postcard postcards letters mail that were getting sent by you know wives back home family members looking for bits of uh, incriminating information or uh, evidence, you know, codes getting sent, espionage kind of shit. Um, and Hanusin bribed this, this guy uh, to feed him a postcard from Captain Mitchka's uh, wife back home. And he discovered that in the postcard, uh, his Mitchka's a spouse was announcing to him that she was pregnant and expecting. So then Hanusin revealed this information in the seance, and uh, the captain was so impressed that he ended up giving him some sum of money, which Hanusin then went and split with the military censor. So it's another illustrative example of the ways in which all of these aspects of Anusin's life would like and and career and criminality would intermingle you've got like the espionage component uh his military service you know uh, an occult cemetery seance and um and bribery and yeah all the like uh, all combined in that single instance um some other anecdotes from his World War I service. He would organize 
high stakes poker games. He would he would perform different bits of like mentalist tricks in the uh, in the trenches and the bunkers, um, entertaining his his fellow combatants. Uh, and yeah, little bits of mind reading um, and actual sleight of hand uh, were some of the ways in which Hanusin would pass the time. Absolutely. And as we will continue to see that no one aspect of his life is really inseparable from the other and his, you know, interest in the occult, his kind of huckster um, stage persona, the, the espionage, it is all... It is all Hanusin. He was a famous trumpet man from all Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with the draft. He's in the army now, a blowing reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. They made him blow a bugle for his Uncle Sam. It really brought him down because he couldn't jam. The captain seemed to understand. Because the next day the cap went out and drafted a band. And now the company jumps when he plays reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. A toot, a toot, a toot de a toot de blows it to the bar. In boogie rhythm, he can't blow a note unless the bass and guitar is playing with him. He makes a company jump when he plays reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. He was a boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. As a buzz and when he plays, he makes the company jump A to the bar. He's a boogie boogie bugle boy of Company B. Do 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 da da do da da. Do do he blows it A to the bar. He can't blow a note if the bass and guitar isn't with him. And the company jumps when he plays Reveille. He's a boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. time of life so could you tell us about that and how he would come to meet the austrian royal family during this time and finally complete his metamorphosis from hermann steinschneider to eric jan hanusen 
Yeah, so Hanusin sneakily came up with this scheme where he correctly determined that he could escort this group of Czech POWs, if I remember correctly, to a internment camp or a military prison that was awaiting them. And he was going to do this in two weeks' time, fulfilling the letter of the law of these orders that he'd received, save for the fact that he'd actually been allotted a month to deliver the men via boxcar. So, always thick as thieves, Hanusin managed to win over his subjects, who he was delivering to hard labor, getting them to agree with the plan and always stay where they were supposed to, while he would disappear to perform his mentalism and uh, telepathic routines and flirt with uh, young women uh, along the way and the like. In return, the men received perks like the booze that Hanusin would furnish them with and, you know, uh, the opportunity to just uh, play cards and, and have, like, the easiest um, captor ever. Uh, and let's see, where was I? Um, oh, this is funny. At one point, they evidently pawned his rifle while drinking and playing poker, but Hanusin was more than satisfied with the arrangement. So, uh, as he managed to deliver them and then escape military service on unsanctioned leave for a total of two weeks, during which he returned to Vienna and set about performing again. Hanusin's temporary AWOL led to him performing in a concert house for some of the Austrian royal family. And this was actually the first instance where he donned the moniker Eric Jan Hanusen. Um, this came about because he encountered uh, one of a long uh, litany of different impresarios that uh, Hanusen would collaborate with throughout his career. This particular individual was named Pepe, I believe. Uh, I think I've got that right. And um, he had already booked this concert house uh, in Vienna, and ticket sales were uh, subpar. And so he and Hanusen got to talking. And um, once he learned that Hanusen was this, uh, you know, this this growing, uh, slowly metamorphosing um, a magician and mentalist whose whose star was in the ascendant, uh, he he decided to loop him in uh, and and in fact make him the headliner act, if I remember correctly. And this performance in turn won him enough favor with members of the uh, Austro-Hungarian royal family that he ended up getting transferred to a military performing unit slash battalion. It wasn't totally smooth sailing because um, 
uh, either an aide or a member of the military, was highly suspicious of this Eric Jan Hanusen character. And um, they, they started digging into his background and they discerned that he was actually, uh, you know, this, this Jewish guy, not this Danish aristocrat that he had started to present himself as. And then they fed that information to the royal family. But members of the royal family were still so smitten with Hanusin that they overlooked this deception. And although they didn't like outright push for his uh, transfer or release, they did agree to give his uh, impresario Pepe um, permission to speak on their behalf and say that the royal family would be very pleased if Hanusin uh, was sent to a different station. So that's how that um, that came about. So something that I thought was really interesting that you taught me about through your notes, I had no idea about this, was the connection between Hanusin and Sigmund Freud's heir, Paul Schilder, as well as the thread that connects Hanusin to some of the early American hypnosis theorists. And so what was the Institute for Breath Therapy and Physical Healing, and what was Hanusin's involvement with both this group and some of the um, early hypnosis theorists? I'm going to go ahead and just read a quote from the Mel Gordon book here that references the Institute for Breath Therapy. And maybe we can return to uh, this a little later if there isn't quite enough information here. Um, I also need to verify myself whether this is the same uh, the same institute as that there there are also references to a spittal gossa or spittal gas um, nerve clinic where Hanusin was practicing hypnosis. And initially, I was under the impression that uh, they were the same thing. But just listener, be aware that um, Luke and I need to confirm that uh, because I'm not 100% positive. But Hanusin was definitely practicing um, hypnosis and hypnotherapy, which is fascinating. So this is from a segment or a section called Freud's Vienna, uh, which states, quote, on his free days, Hanusin studied and practiced at a Viennese medical clinic, the Institute for Breath Therapy and Physical Healing Techniques, under Max Osterman's expert tutelage, the showman headed the Institute's hypnotic unit and would soon branch out to found his own school of hypnosis and the occult arts. Hanusin's students came from all walks of life. One group consisted of a manufacturer, an actor, an attorney, a physician, and a factory laborer. Altogether, 14 of them were introduced on the Apollo stage where, uh, where were duplicated the quote-unquote parapsychological experiments of their master. 
Hanusin also demonstrated his system of absolute telepathy at the League of Viennese Physicians. In the auditorium of Vienna University, Dr. Alexander Pilch, a respected professor of neurology and indefatigable researcher in quote-unquote borderline science, designed a rigorously uh, controlled experiment to test the telepath's claims. In an adjoining room, Hanusin was to guess four digits drawn on the lecture hall blackboard. Eric got two numbers of four numbers right. The odds of such an occurrence happening at random were exactly 20 to 1. In a statistically unlikely aside, uh, Pilch or Pilks reported that his test case, a non-clairvoyant doctor, uh, also guessed two of the numbers correctly. So there's that, which I find uh, really fascinating. So the fact that Hanusin was actually practicing hypnotism at this medical clinic. So while reading through Mel Gordon's Eric Jan Hanusin, Hitler's Jewish clairvoyant, I just found a passage that connects Hanusin to some of these earlier American hypnosis theorists that I've been looking into on PPM. So evidently in 1914-15, Hanusin learned muscle reading from the uh, experimental psychologist Joe Libero. As we know, uh, Hanusin approached him at the time and offered him a couple hundred Cronin to basically expose a rival stage magician that Hanusin was vying against, who was named Rubini. Um, we already referenced this, who was touring Vienna, very popular telepathy act, um, and his entire act was primarily built on muscle reading. Anyways, Hanusin paid this experimental psychologist to expose the methods Rubini was using, and then convinced Libero to teach him said techniques with assurances that he only wanted to know for journalistic purposes. Of course, Hanusin would go on to incorporate muscle reading into his stage magic acts in Berlin, so he outright lied. According to Gordon, muscle reading is a phrase coined by the neurologist Dr. George Miller Beard in 1874. American clinicians and psychologists had been attempting to account for the remarkable, purportedly telepathic demonstrations of the Missouri showman, Jacob Randall Brown, and it was the Connecticutter Beard that finally cracked the code. Speaking of Beard, he's best remembered for having defined neurasthenia, the nervous condition that was believed to have been caused by the stresses of urbanization and life in the city, which in the late 19th century was a wholly new and novel symptomatic outcropping that would later serve as a touchpoint for doctors seeking to understand war neuroses during World War I. If I remember correctly, 
further illustrating the ways in which cutting-edge psychology, spiritualism, and hypnotherapy were all bound up together. Beard was also directly involved in the formulation of electroshock as a therapy. So that's also very interesting. Furthermore, this Jacob Randall Brown charlatan, who appears to have been a major progenitor of these muscle-reading, psychometry, graphology, etc. practices that would indelibly influence stage magic and criminology in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, also directly inspired William James's objective psychology. These uh, antique quackery lie detector machines that sought to practically implement these ideas. So I also find that fascinating as James was another one of these major proponents of hypnotherapy and faculty at Harvard and an exemplar of Massachusetts, which is a special focus of uh, parapower mapping. So we can see how Hanussen's stage magic routines were not only directly inspired by these figures, but at the intersection of these curiously intertwined historical threads. Furthermore, he was actually a subject for one of Sigmund Freud's most promising pupils while working as a performer in Vienna. So there are psychoanalysis connections present too. I guess these lessons from Libero were crucial in this formative period of Hanussen's stage magic and mentalist development. According to Gordon, Libero taught Hanussen not only the muscle reading, but also, quote, telepathy without bodily contact, end quote, where you basically have to visually perceive the minute bodily cues that give away where the person has hidden an, an object, for example. He also taught Hanusin pseudo-telepathy, or echolalia, where the magician's assistant uses a system of code words to communicate the object that the blindfolded magician is supposed to perceive. As for Freud and Hanusin, I believe I've come across two references to them having potentially met. In Gordon's book, he cites an account from a woman named Geza von Sivra, uh, probably butchering her name, and she claimed to have seen Hanusin's diaries from right around his successful exorcism of a milkmaid in the old Frankist village of Prosnitz his spiritual home. According to Geza, Hanussen and Freud met in Prague and shared a late-night dinner in a hotel, during which they discussed the efficacy of hypnosis. Gordon calls this Hanussenia and dismisses it as apocryphal, and Judging from the fact that he's generally quicker to believe Hanusin than Magida, from what I can tell, it seems fairly likely that the story is embellished or possibly uh, fabricated from whole cloth. That said, 
whether the two literally met in the flesh or not, they were definitely connected. As you mentioned, Luke, Freud's heir apparent, Paul Schilder, examined Hanussen in his university laboratory and was evidently impressed enough by Hanussen's purported telepathic abilities that he wrote up the experiment, deeming it worthy of future study. I admittedly don't find it very impressive, especially if they were sitting across from each other at a table. In which case, I gotta say, Schilder wasn't a very creative dude. Um, because, yeah, evidently, Hanussen correctly ascertained that Schilder was thinking of a five-legged round table, and he drew it. Then again, psychoanalysts and researchers are corruptible people, too, so who's to say that Hanussen's lifelong practice of bribery didn't apply in this uh, case as well. Yeah, that's uh, certainly a possibility with the bribery. And it's also, I guess, I mean, could just be a little bit humorous to think that uh, Schilder is, you know, every bit as uh, what would you describe it? Um, you know, it, it'd be funny for a psychoanalyst to be susceptible to trickery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I don't think that we can have this conversation without going into Hanusin's time as a psychic detective of sorts, which is, I mean, just too interesting. I mean, it's literally something out of a movie or something. So perhaps we should start off this conversation with the Austro-Hungarian state fake printing theft. So this is an anecdote that I already briefly mentioned in a previous PPM episode, so apologies to any of my listeners that might be tuning in for the retread, um, but pulling from Mel Gordon's Eric Jan Hanussen, uh, Hanussen was enlisted in solving the theft of some hundreds of thousands of Kronen bills from the Austro-Hungarian state bank in Vienna. One thing I failed to mention before um, was the implications of the crime, this being in the early years of the first Austrian Republic following the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire post-World War I. Austrian currency was in a precarious position, so the fact that hundreds of thousands of bills were disappearing was really raising the alarm and a concern for the nascent country's economy. According to the, the tale, I guess the bank's directors were pissed at Viennese police's apparent disinterest in catching the culprits, so they enlisted uh, Hanusen, and Hanusen brought a camera, a dowsing rod, and his African assistant with him when he visited the bank's mint and obviously tried to make a media day out of it. Hanusen's ability to uh, ascertain the culprit of a crime is probably uh, attributable to impressive observation skills, which he'd then play off as clairvoyance. 
In this case, he determined it had to be an inside job. Either that, or he once again had insider or prior knowledge, as was often suspected throughout his turbulent career. It's highly likely that, at least in some instances, Hanusin was actually directly involved in the planning and carrying out of crimes. According to contemporary accounts, his prediction was immediately borne out when an employee was caught in the building with a ton of bills stuffed in his coat. Hanusin and the Vienna police immediately started warring in the papers, trying to respectively claim credit and discredit the other. It's uh, also a fascinating story as the Viennese police so chafed against his manipulation, his being Eric, uh, of the media frenzy and denouncements of their incompetence that the police commissioner outlawed stage hypnotism in the city in response. Remember this anecdote when we talk Dr. Mabusa. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely crazy. And another one of my favorite anecdotes from Hanusen's time as a psychic detective of sorts was when he would put his skills to the test by looking into the serial killer Peter Curtin, otherwise known as the Vampire of Dusseldorf. So could you tell us about that and just some of the other stories of Hanusin um, foray into being a psychic detective? Definitely. Yeah, there's another one where Hanusin was involved in solving a case of uh, Grand Theft Auto. And if I can remember correctly, it's one instance where he was suspected of playing a role in the plot. This led to one of Hanusin's early court appearances and cross-examination of his purported uh, paranormal abilities. A recurrence in Hanusin's short life that also makes it into Werner Herzog's um, Invincible, the... Uh, the semi-fictional film about Hanusin and the Jewish strongman Zisha uh, Breitbart, who um, Hanusin would try to Aryanize, which is a, it's an interesting movie. I mean, aspects of it are really fascinating and, um, of course, well-made, um, though I will say that I am not a fan of the dialogue in places. It's like very stilted and weird. And also for whatever reason, Werner decided to make the film in English too. Yeah, it's it's an interesting film. I don't have you seen it, Luke? I haven't. I was actually gonna plan on watching it tomorrow. So when we get back to um this in our second conversation we'll have together, I will give you my opinions on Invincible because I have been wanting to watch it. I've just been trying to play catch up so much that that's kind of how I've been using my free time. Yeah. And maybe we can just revisit. You can cut this and we can revisit it then in the uh, next part. One of the most fascinating and blood curdling of Hanusin's criminal telepathy anecdotes has to be the fact that he figured into the case of the quote unquote vampire of Dusseldorf. 
throughout 1929 and into early 1930, Dusseldorf was enduring a reign of terror and brutality uh, of the most extreme. We're talking about a prototypical serial killer and one at the levels of Jeffrey Dahmer in both the number of victims and the sadism involved. The identity of the vampire was one Peter Curtin, a man in his late 40s who was raised by abusive alcoholic parents who frankly sound like they were the worst. Born six years before Hanusin, Curtin was one of 13 children, two of who died in infancy. Trigger warning, but evidently Curtin's father used to line up his kids and then force his wife to strip naked and have sex with her while they were all watching. So, just terribly depraved. He would also beat them repeatedly. And he evidently especially uh, meted out punishment and uh, really just torture on his son, uh, Peter Curtin. These early traumas obviously played a major role in the development of Curtin's sadism and apparent mental illness. Curtin would later confess that, at the age of nine, he drowned two school-aged friends, deaths at the time that were ruled accidental. As an adolescent, his insatiable sexual appetite led him to practicing bestiality and, trigger warning again, developing this habit of slitting the throats of the animals he would have sex with while orgasming. Makes really me think of Alistair Crowley and the Abbey of <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, that's kind of wild. All of the, the wasn't it chicken carcasses stuffed into a, uh, no, bloody ties. Bloody ties stuffed into a tree trunk. Do you know this anecdote? Crowley evidently stuffed a ton of bloody ties into a tree trunk near the Abbey of Thelema. And he took the wife of one of his acolytes who he was smitten with. Um, this woman was like uh, a, a prostitute from London and a cabaret singer as well, I think, actually, who, uh, funnily enough, was also suspected of having like killed at least one previous husband and potentially murdered others. And Crowley took this woman uh, to this tree trunk showed her all these bloody ties that potentially had been dipped in like blood from animals that had been ritualistically killed or something. I, I'm not entirely certain. I, I'm going off of memory here. But he told the woman that that the ties were Jack the Rippers, which <laughs> which I just find yeah, I just find so crazy. Had you heard this before, Luke? No, I, I hadn't. What that made me think of was the story of uh, Crowley trying to get a goat to copulate with one of his like scarlet women or something like that at the right. Abbey of Thelema. And I don't think that they could make it happen, but the plan was to get the goat to bring her to climax and slit its throat at 
the peak of it, you know, to get the most energy possible out of the, the magical working or something. And so it's kind of funny that you could see a similarity between this, you know, uh, ritual purportedly done by Crowley and just a depraved serial killers, you know, kind of um, instincts or, or something like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There are so many depraved stories from that period uh, in Italy um, of the Abbey of Thelema. But I think uh, the reason I was thinking of uh, this particular story about the bloody ties in the tree trunk is because he referenced Jack the Ripper and the vampire of Dusseldorf was frequently like uh, referred to as like the German um, Jack the Ripper as well. and, Very and then, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to find that and share it with you too, because I'm pretty sure there is a component of uh, like animals getting uh, ritualistically killed. Um, and that's like where he was getting the blood <laughs> that he was soaking these ties in for whatever reason. Um, yeah. We could do, yeah, we could go off on Crowley uh, and that, and that time. Um, but uh, do you have anything else you want to say about that period? Uh, oh no no i i was just getting us off on a on a rabbit trail but let's just go ahead and get back to uh peter curtin okay so he was practice he was practicing bestiality and uh he had this habit of slitting throats of animals so this kind of paraphilia and um throughout his adult life he was in and out of penal colonies and his rap sheet was long and varied of course It's also interesting to note that he served in the Imperial German Army in 1904, although he deserted. The first murder that was definitively linked to Curtin was the strangling of a nine-year-old girl that he discovered asleep in a bed um, in a house he was burglarizing. This was in 1913. This led to Curtin slashing her throat and satiating his gruesome paraphilia. Interestingly, he evidently returned to a tavern across from the scene of the crime, exhibiting that archetypal behavior of serial killers that's now well known, until he was later brought in for the Vampire of Dusseldorf killings, He managed to avoid having this and another attempted murder around the same time tied to him. As for the actual vampire of Dusseldorf killings, the official count, at least according to Wikipedia, is that Curtin was stuck with nine plus counts of murder and 31 plus counts of attempted murder. During this half year or so, per Gordon, 79 people had been viciously wounded by a scissors or hammer-wielding maniac, and at least 11 had died. A few of these were surely copycats or unrelated incidents that got lumped in with the Syrian mortars' uh, litany of victims in the media frenzy or at least I'd assume. The defining characteristic of the murders and the nickname that the media ran with was the occasional discovery 
of literal puncture marks on victims' necks and other evidence that the killer, i.e. Curtin, was attempting to drink blood. Apparently, Curtin's paraphilia literally grew to sucking blood, so <laughs> that's fucking crazy. We need to move on, but another thing that's fascinating is that Ernst Gennot, the head of Berlin's homicide department, determined that the vampire was a single killer through graphological analysis of two notes that had been sent in, one to the police and the other to a communist newspaper, which divulged the location of the bodies of two victims. Now, I have like this sneaking suspicion, and I don't have any evidence to back it up, but I wonder about uh, the fact that a communist newspaper was chosen, uh, the, the newspaper that the vampire of Dusseldorf um, chose to give one of these letters and clues to a body was a communist paper. I just, I, I find that a little suspicious. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, that is perplexing, especially because you wouldn't expect it to be the uh, biggest outlet or the outlet most likely to, uh, you know, publish stuff related to that. So I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know what the uh, possible motive would be in doing that, but it definitely is something that uh, makes you scratch your head and wonder why. I guess my hunch or my wonderment is whether there's a possibility that that body had already been discovered and that for PSYOP and propaganda purposes, uh, a letter was sent in to divulge um, its location to a communist paper to try and like tie uh, communist elements in Weimar, Dusseldorf, and Germany at the time to the vampire of Dusseldorf. Um, or to make him appear like a communist sympathizer. Like I have no evidence to back it up. I haven't, I haven't done my due diligence and looked into it. And maybe this is something you'll want to cut, but I've just like, I just wonder about that a little bit. And you know, there, there are instances of that kind of thing, as we'll see with the Reichstag fire, right? Like that is a prime uh, example of fascist Nazi elements within uh, Germany at the time doing that kind of thing. I don't know. It's a half-formed thought, but I just thought I'd throw it out there. So I'd referenced Ernst Gennot, aka the Buddha, who was this famous homicide inspector, and he was actually the head of the Berlin Homicide Department, who totally revolutionized um, forensic science and, uh, yeah, was a major innovator when it came to criminal investigation. And his connection to the Vampire of Dusseldorf case is wild because of his revolutionary um, uses of forensics, as I just mentioned, but also the fact that he coined the phrase serial killer, not the guy from Mindhunter <laughs> who's, who's tried to, uh, who's seemingly like positioned himself as the, the person that coined that phrase, at least in English. I think I'm right. Uh, have you seen that show? You know, yes, Mind Hunter. Yes, I have. Okay. Didn't that guy uh, like basically claim to have 
coined the phrase serial killer or they present it in that way in that show i believe so and the guy who wrote that book that the show's based off which i believe is also called mind hunter is just so full of shit i think jimmy fallon gong (laughs) has done um an episode or two in his program to kill series on that guy i can't it's john something but yeah that guy's uh he's a piece of work word yeah i need to go back and listen to those episodes i'm not sure i actually have thanks for reminding me so anyways ernst gennott came up with the phrase syrian mortar uh probably mispronouncing it but um he was the first to uh coin the phrase serial killer um except in german let's see furthermore He's the inspiration for the character Inspector Lohman in Fritz Lang's Noirs, who appears in both M, which was directly inspired by the vampire of Dusseldorf, and the testament of Dr. Mabusa. So two of Lang's most legendary noirs allude to Eric Jan Hanussen, Ernst Gennad, and the vampire. As for Eric's involvement in the investigation, he joined a massive fray of soothsayers and psychics, estimated to be as large as 500 strong, who were seeking to solve the murder and claim the 15,000 francs that were being offered in reward money. Another way in which the vampire case prefigures so many serial killer tropes is the fact that he left, at least by one estimate, 2,000 notes and clues for the investigators and journalists in this positively Seven-esque fashion. I guess Hanussen was a little late to the party, as the Dusseldorf PD declined his overtures and offerings of help as they'd grown frustrated with the fracas. He still sought to manipulate the case that had the newspaper readers of the Weimar Republic enraptured. He first released a series of, if I remember correctly, 24 of the killer's characteristics that he'd reportedly ascertained via telepathic means, more likely deduction, guesswork, and possibly bribes. He also began to threaten the vampire, writing in letters that, if he didn't turn himself in, he would reveal his identity. It appears that a decent number of Hanussen's speculations about Curtin were way wide of the mark, but some of them were close enough to the truth that it didn't do any lasting damage to his credibility. The vampire was finally ferreted out by Gennot after he foolishly told his address to a rape victim that he didn't kill This, in turn, led him to finally confess to the murders to his wife, who uh, then entreated him to turn himself in. In 1931, he was executed by guillotine, uh, which they still did back then. 
It is interesting to note that it seems his confession was consistent with the period at which Hanusin was publishing open letters to the killer, threatening him to turn himself in or else face the consequences, so on and so forth. Uh, while I don't know nearly enough about the vampire of Dusseldorf case to warrant this, I can't help but wonder whether there was any hidden proto-MCade dimension to the case. As previously mentioned, Curtin was a German soldier. He served in the 98th Infantry in Metz, where he later deserted. Because of this, he was brought before a military tribunal on counts of desertion, arsonry, and robbery. Fascinatingly, there does appear to be a connection between his military incarceration and later serial murders, as Curtin later claimed that during his imprisonment in Munster from 1905 to 1913, he was constantly in solitary confinement and that his exposure to corporal punishment fueled his malignant fantasies of violent rape and murder and the like. So you make of that what you will. Yeah, all all very interesting. And it's just so funny how Hanusin, you know, finds a way to, you know, even appear in that story, even if only as a bit of a footnote, but certainly very interesting. You mentioned Babylon Berlin, as well as some Fritz Lang noir films like Dr. Mabuse, The Gambler, and The Testament of Dr. Mabuse. And so um, could you tell us just a little bit more about how this relates to the Hanusin story? Because I think that that's interesting. Hanusin was also an inspiration for this character named uh, Dr. Anno Schmidt. And this is in this Netflix show, uh, a noir called Babylon Berlin, which is also set in Weimar, Germany. Dr. Schmidt is seemingly an amalgam of Hanusin and actual hypnotherapists like Dr. Max Nona or Dr. Edmund Forster from the same period. He's also a thinly veiled nod to the character Dr. Mabusa from the Fritz Lang films. Um, in fact, in the show, there, there are scenes in the Berlin stock market that are like a direct pastiche of um, the first Dr. Mabusa film, in which Dr. Mabusa, uh, this, this hypnotic puppet master and criminal mastermind and master of disguise, funnily, <laughs> funnily enough, he creates an artificial stock market panic or crash um, by getting one of his henchmen to steal this, uh, this hugely important governmental contract and the show Babylon Berlin has a scene um, similarly where it's, you know, it's actual Black Friday, uh, 1929, the time at which, you know, the Great Depression begins. It bookends um, season three of Babylon Berlin and the protagonist, this uh, detective, Garyon Roth, uh, is like there in the, the stock market in Berlin uh, at the moment that, you know, like all these financiers and uh, 
and brokers are you know hanging themselves and the scene uh, directly mirrors uh, the scene from the testament of dr mabusa where there are all of these stock slips like on the ground of the of the stock market and interestingly in the show babylon berlin the show's still running i think they're gearing up for a fifth season but i i have this suspicion that this character this hypnotic doctor anno schmidt um who it also alludes to Eric Jan Hanussen, um, is actually uh, doing these kinds of Dr. Mabusa-esque uh, manipulations of the conditions like on an economic and uh, organized criminal level in Berlin and, and also on a psychological level. Um, he, he's obsessed with like transhumanism um, and it, he wants to create like the, the Germanic Ubermensch through like there are scenes where he's injecting weasels with the methamphetamine pervitin and um, w- wild stuff. So they, they combine all of these uh, different influences and real life figures into the character of Dr. Anno Schmidt. And I have a hunch that he in the show uh, is working on some kind of scheme akin to the one in Lang's Mabusa, which is also thinly veiled commentary on the rise of fascism and Nazism in Germany at the time. Except, I mean, it's fascinating because it's uh, contemporaneous, you know, like he was, the first movie came out in the early 1920s, I believe. And then um, the second Mabusa film came out in uh, right around time of um, Hitler's ascent to the chancellery. Um, so all of that said, uh, yeah, there, I'll return to that point um, and the, the juxtaposition or comparison of these different these different shows and, and films. But here's the evidence of uh, Hanusen being present as a um, source in Dr. Schmidt's storyline. So in the first season, Schmidt's running an elaborate sexual blackmail ring with elements of the Berlinese criminal underground, and he's compiling compromat footage of prominent Weimar politicians. Then you have the fact that Schmidt is also an occultist, specifically a member of the Fraternitas Saturni, and then you have the fact that Schmidt is a powerful hypnotist. And finally, there's the fact that Schmidt gets enlisted by the Berlin PD to perform criminal telepathy with a trance medium in season three, a scene that evokes Hanusen's repeated collaboration, which was sometimes brought with police departments in Austria and Germany. So I won't unpack all of the similarities between uh, Hanusen and Dr. Mabusa right now because I feel like we have too much to get to. Um, But listeners can check out my uh, ASFA series if they want to hear more about that. Um, But suffice to say that the character Dr. Mabusa is a criminal mastermind. And uh, one thing that I didn't mention about the uh, the second Dr. Mabusa film, The Testament of Dr. Mabusa, is the fact that Goebbels actually suppressed it, and it had been scheduled to release right around the time of the Reichstag fire and uh, in the early days of Hitler's reign. 
Lang was feted by Goebbels, who wanted to employ him in producing Nazi propaganda, but the master of the noir declined and promptly fled to Paris. Evidently pawning his wife's jewelry and leaving her behind, like that's how abrupt his flight was, um, which it always gets me. Uh, Goebbels decided to suppress the film because of the thinly veiled criticisms of the NSDAP contained within. Anyways, this notion that there were hypno-fascist elements within the country who were involved in the Nazi Party's ascent and the rise of fascism isn't just something that uh, I'm retroactively ascribing to history. These were contemporary ideas that were commonplace and encapsulated in Lang's films. And um, due to the film's suppression, Lang uh, even chose to remake a French version of it. I believe it's Mel Gordon that writes that Lang attended some of Hanussen's performances in Berlin, and as previously established, it seems apparent that he knew of Hanussen through the allusions in his character, uh, the Dr. Mabusa. A similarly curious intersection is the fact that, in the show Babylon Berlin, the hypno-puppet master and criminal mastermind, Dr. Anno Schmidt, is the therapist of this wealthy industrialist fail son named Alfred Nussen, who is patterned after the Krupps and Tussens. Guess who Hanussen impressed with his mentalist and spiritualist routines in 1930? Evidently, he performed a private seance at the Krupp Mansion outside Essen. I don't know what to make of this account, but Gordon claims that Hanussen predicted that one of the Iron Magnate's friends would be living in Bombay on his 50th birthday, which would fall in 1942. According to Hanussen, the man and his Jewish wife would be living in exile, a pronouncement he made a good uh, nine years before war in Europe broke out. Supposedly, Hanussen similarly foresaw marching British troops during that very same evening seance. Wow. Uh, <laughs> that's a lot to take in, and it's always interesting how the writers of uh, shows like Babylon Berlin uh, are sometimes more uh, historically adept than you would expect them to be um so eventually hanusen would receive some flack for his hypnotism stage show in october of 1919 could you tell us just a little bit about that for sure this is another uncanny anecdote um evidently some of the mediums that hanusen enlisted during his october stage show started complaining of headaches and dizzy spells following their hypnosis, which led to a minor furor and Hanusen having to re-hypnotize the complainants in a hotel room. I honestly don't know what to make of it beyond that it's fascinating. Um, I don't know, Luke, do you think it's a stretch to say it's evocative of stories of like MK monarch agents or Manchurian candidates dealing with neurological issues some like 
Uh, I don't know. I'd have to go back and look at uh, Dr. George Estabrooks's writings to see if there are mentions of headaches. Maybe maybe you can think of something off the top of your head, but I, I was wondering about that a little bit. No, I don't think it's far-fetched to say that. I mean, it's, you know, speculation, but I mean, especially since he was, you know, at the Institute of Breath and Physical Healing and that he had been you know, undergoing studies and, and stuff like that. And I mean, that's just what's, you know, in the historical record, you know, who's to say what was going on outside of what's been documented. And I would say that it does kind of evoke similar thoughts in uh, my mind. And, you know, just to kind of, you know, go a little bit further into things before we conclude the show, um, something that I thought was, you know, really interesting was um, the mind reading stunt that he would do at the Berlin Aviation Association. So could you tell us about that as well? Yeah. Not long after World War I, one of Hanussen's early stunts that furnished his notoriety was this performance. And I think they did it at an airfield. Um, and he organized this again to benefit POWs, uh, which, again, we see you know, this account rhymes with the earlier one uh, from the cemetery seance, if I remember correctly. And um, he was asked on behalf of the Berlin Aviation Association. What seems interesting about the incident is it indicates continued connections, however tangential to military elements. The gist of the routine was that Hanusin telepathically ascertained the contents of a sealed message that were stowed in a cockpit as a pilot flew curlicues over a crowd of onlookers. And I think the bit backfired a bit because the crowd initially thought he tried to cowardly hightail it away when he drove up and saw the number of onlookers, um, many of whom were trying to press him to use messages they'd brought with him, which would all obviously um, could could throw a wrench in uh, this pre-planned scheme. But yeah, it seems obvious to me that the whole thing was pre-arranged charade and that the person that actually delivered the letter to Hanusin was probably paid and um, all aspects had likely been previously agreed. All right. And so now we get to the last question of tonight. So what was the story of this waiter committing suicide? Another one of Hanusin's, uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, inflated stories. So I would have to go back and look at the, the Gordon text and compare it with other accounts to see. I think they're there probably is some sort of newspaper trail documenting that this death actually happened, but um, you and I would have to verify that, Luke. Anyways, there's um, this account from the second Frau Hanusen that uh, Hanusen, while they were out at dinner in a cafe, um, ordered her to move seats uh, moments before a waiter had an argument with his lover and then shot himself in the head. So I guess the question is, is this another bit of hagiography um, or do we chalk it up to Hanusin's like admittedly uncanny observation skills, which 
in my mind, it seems like there's more than enough evidence, despite the the bribery, the sexual blackmail, and the ways in which she would, um, you know, pathologically compile and collect information that he could then utilize to build his persona, his fame, and also exert influence over people. Like, do, do we, uh, you know, do we tally this as um, an incident of like impressive observation or, or is there something more to, to this account? I mean, as we'll get to in the next part, we're not, we're not going to really talk about it yet, but there are at least a couple instances where um, speculation that Hanusen had a direct hand in people's deaths, um, unexplained deaths, is not unreasonable. Um, specifically, there's a race car driving aristocrat who uh, Hanusen crazily predicted would die during during his race and even handed this letter that supposedly uh, contained the, the name of um, a person that was going to die in a crash in that race to a bartender. Again, this is something that could have been like retroactively arranged. Maybe he just took advantage of the situation. We'll talk about it later. Or it could be an example of him having prior knowledge that something was going to happen, potentially because of his Nazi connections or intelligence connections, or even maybe um, we'll see the possibility that like Hanusen could have been involved in uh, directly sabotaging this guy's vehicle for politically motivated or espionage related reasons. Um, I'm unsure. Yeah. What are, what are your thoughts about this, this account of Hanusen uh, foreseeing this waiter's sudden suicide? You know, I think it is a classic Hanusen story because it is enough to make you really wonder if he did have some sort of, you know, um, uncanny ability to uh, see things before they happen. But you also are just skeptical of if there's something uh, to the story aside from that. I think that this is just um, kind of like classic Hanusen because he does have that theatrical aspect of himself. He's not a reliable narrator. But at the same time, there are instances where, you know, in even in some of these instances, you know, there are other people who attest to the fact that he had this um, sort of foresight that almost kind of makes you, you know, second guess your your skeptical side. So I think that uh, my opinion is that this is um, just another one of the many stories that's indicative of who Hanusen was as as a character, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well said. It's, I mean, it's just full of ambiguity and impossible to say, of course, but uh, a very fun conundrum, that's for sure. Absolutely. So do we, before uh, stopping the recording and waiting on things to upload to the cloud, do we want to do like some sort of like, you know, say where people can find us for, for listeners and whatnot? Let's, let's do do that. All right. Well, my name is Luke Marshall, and if you are listening on the Parapower mapping side of things, you can find me on Twitter at ThingObserver, one word, at ThingObserver, all lowercase. And my podcast is called Things Observed, and it is on 
most podcasting platforms. I've tried to put some labor into making sure that it gets up most places where people get their podcasts. What about you, Gosh? Nice. All PPM listeners should go and follow uh, Luke over on the uh, the old Twitter. And um, likewise, if there are any things observers out there besides Luke that would be interested in uh, in uh, giving me me an old follow and um, looking at my uh, thoroughly schizo para power mapping threads on Twitter, I, I'd be more than happy to uh, meet you over there and and have a chat. Um, about all manner of things. And, and likewise, please check out the show. Um, similarly, you should be able to find uh, PPM on uh, most uh, podcasters. So please, please give it a listen. And, and also, please like, share and review both of our shows so more people can discover them. And if you have a couple bucks lying around, you know, Give good old Luke here and myself a little sub on uh, our respective Patreons. That would also be greatly appreciated. I think that's all for old. Uh, why do I keep saying old? <laughs> I think that's <laughs> enough for uh, Flonny Gosh. Absolutely. I think you summed up everything. And one thing for all the listeners out there is you guys should start a podcast because it's fun. And also you'll figure out all your verbal tics. Like um, I think during this episode alone, I've said – could you tell me about, um, <laughs> you know, a million different times. So podcasting can also uh, help you in your speech because it makes everything very apparent, um, all your neat little verbal tics. But anyways, thanks everyone for listening. Stalin wasn't stolen when he told the beast of Berlin that they'd never rest contented till they had driven him from the land. So he called the Yanks and English and proceeded to extinguish the Führer and his vermin. This is how it all began. Now the devil, he was reading in the good book one day how the Lord created Adam to walk the righteous way. And it made the devil jealous. He turned green up to his horns and he swore by things unholy that he'd make one of his own. So he packed two suitcases full of grief and misery And he caught the midnight special going down to Germany Then he mixed his lies and hatred with fire and brimstone Then the devil sat upon it, that's how Adolf was born Now Adolf got the notion that he was the master race and he swore he'd bring you order and put mankind in its place. So he set his scheme in motion and was winning everywhere until he upped and got the notion for to kick that Russian bear. Stalin wasn't stalling when he told the beast of Berlin that they'd never rest contented till they had driven him from the land. So he called the Yanks and English and proceeded to extinguish the Führer and his vermin, this is how it all began. Yes, he kicked that noble Russian, but it wasn't very long before Adolf got suspicious that he had done something wrong. Cause that bear grabbed the Führer and gave him an awful fight. Seventeen months he scrapped the Führer to and claw day and night. Then that bear smacked the Führer with a mighty armored paw. And Adolf broke all records running backwards to Krakow. Then Goebbels sent a message to the people 
everywhere that if they couldn't hit the Fuhrer gods and hit that Russian bear. Stalin wasn't stalling when he told the peace to Berlin that they'd never rest contented till they had driven him from the land. So he called the Yanks and English and proceeded to extinguish the Fuhrer and his vermin. This is how it all began. Then this bear called on his buddy, the no-fighting Yank, and they set the Fuhrer running with their ships and planes and tanks. Now the Fuhrer's having nightmares, cause the Fuhrer knows darn well that the devil's done roast welcome on his residence in a... Stalin wasn't stalling when he told the beast of Berlin that they'd never rest contented till they had driven him from the land. So he called the Yanks and English and proceeded to extinguish the Fuhrer and his vermin. This is how it all...